Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Five. Let us savor the idea that the Conservative government might fall in a storm of knickers. Four. Our political and media class keeps telling us how nasty we all are and how institutionally difficult the UK is finding it to cope with this immigration question. MI6 and MI5, bless them, so obsessed with their own woke culture and their rainbow lanyards that, you know, I just wonder how effective a job they're doing these days. Assuming that the Tories are left with about 12 seats next year, you just know that their conclusion is going to be that they were too right-wing. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, Christmas is almost upon us, co-pilot. Trees are being decorated, fridges are being stuffed to bursting point with food, and for all you last-minute merchants out there, there's just a few shopping days left before the 25th of December. And as the year draws to a close, it's time to look back on 2023 and look forward to the year ahead – and we'll be joined during this visit to Planet Normal by none other than Tim Stanley and Con Coughlin, two of the Telegraph's most distinguished columnists. We'll be discussing everything from wars in Ukraine in the Middle East to the US elections in November, and of course a general election here in the UK. Plus, Alison, you'll be giving out some end-of-year gongs, nominating your political party hell-bent on Extinction Award, <laughs> your Abuse of the English Language Award, and your For God's Sake, Please Make It Stop Award. We can't wait. But before that... Let's reflect briefly on this week. 2023, in your words, Alison, is weaving towards its end like a drunk shushing noisily as he crashes through his own front door. And you think this pretty ropey year is summed up by the Michelle Moan episode. Baroness Moan, ennobled by David Cameron, set up the lingerie company Ultimo, highly successful in business. Moan and her husband have been even more successful, Alison, in flogging PPE, personal protective equipment such as medical masks and gowns to the NHS and the government more broadly during the COVID pandemic. And for a pretty penny, to say the least. As we have our distinguished parliamentary correspondent with us, Tim Stanley, let, let us savour the idea that the Conservative government might fall in a storm of knickers. Frothy <laughs> knickers. I mean, it's like an Alan Bennett play, isn't it, really? <laughs> or a Tom Jones concert. <laughs> We knew the Tories were pants, but they are actually pants. I know readers have been absolutely furious about this Michelle Moan story, which hasn't been able to really come out. I mean, everyone knows the story, Liam. She basically flogged with Vira, a company that seemed to be some sort of VIP fast track, selling huge amounts to a panicking cabinet in spring of 2020. And gowns and masks were £200 million, were allegedly fast track to PP MedPro, which Michelle said she had nothing to do with. But now suddenly it turns out that they yielded profits of 65 million, of which 29 million pounds of taxpayers' money has somehow found itself away into a trust fund of which Michelle Moan, Barrowman, her partner, and their respective kids are beneficiaries. And she did insist it's not a crime. 
No, it's not a crime, but it is pretty repellent, I think. While all of us were being enjoined to make sacrifices for the national good, Michelle and co were truffling up a huge amount of public money and a lot of the PPE, I think, wasn't used and wasn't terribly good. Anyway, we should say, Liam, that there is a national crime agency investigation into allegations of fraud and bribery in relation to PPE MedPro contracts and Lady Moan and Mr. Barrowman do deny any wrongdoing. But yeah, I mean, it feels like a pretty unsavoury episode. It also feels to me like the kind of thing that happens at the end of of an era. We're seeing a lot of these so bad you could hardly make it up stories. I don't know what you think. I think it is pretty indicative of where the Tory party are. We should stress again, as you just did, Alison, Baroness Moan and her husband deny all wrongdoing. They've admitted lying, but not to the Cabinet Office, not to the Cabinet Secretary, not to anyone in Whitehall. They insist the Conservative Party knew about the company and its origins and who owned it. She has admitted, though, to telling the press things that were untrue, which she insists isn't a crime. So when she's referred to as lying, we're talking about what she was telling journalists, lawyers of hers contacting journalists who were trying to write this story, warning them off when actually the journalists were correct. What do you make of this, Tim Stanley? It's sort of like the end of the Roman Empire, all excesses and hubris. And it has to end in a way, of course, that lends itself to cheap innuendos and puns. <laughs> <laughs> That's an unfortunate slip. The bottom line. Come yes, on, Stanley. Exactly. Let's go. Let's go. I was about to say it's, it's, it's gone something up. but uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. I think the general theme of this year has been it does feel like the embarrassing uh, end of the Roman Empire, except if it were scripted by Nadine Dorries. But just to make it all the more fun and and saucy and ribald. Um, And and I think part of the problem is that I'm not sure the public's paying much attention. This is a potential scandal, of course, but it's nothing on the level of Boris Partygate and all the other stuff which really captured the attention. It feels more like, oh, no, another thing. Every week, another MP is investigated. Another MP is forced to hold a by-election. Although this is an embarrassing story, I don't think it spells the end of anything because everything's already over. We should say that Baroness Moan is the de facto Tory peer, though she lost the whip because of the leave of absence she's on as a result of this scandal. Alison, let's talk a little bit about the year ahead Rishi Sunak has admitted that the election is going to be next year, which means it isn't going to be in sort of January 2025, which it could be. So it is going to be next year. I was say people would definitely vote against me if he ruined Christmas. <laughs> That's right. Of course it's going to be held before the new year. He wouldn't force us to campaign over Christmas. <laughs> so how do you think it's going to go, Alison? You've been saying for quite a few months. <laughs> you that know how I think it's going to go, Liam. That there isn't a safe Tory seat in the country. <laughs> there isn't. I ha- I've been telling you for 18 months there isn't a safe Tory seat in the country. I was particularly like the Rishi touch this week where he said that there was no target to stop the boats. I actually thought that... A year ago, he was telling us they had, well, wasn't he going to be delivering these five pledges within 12 months? So we're now on to no target at all. I think we've had several um, sequences of five points. Tim can correct me if I'm wrong, but let me just read to you. This was one of my awards in my Telegraph column this week, which is for the Political Party Hellbent on Extinction Award. 
a truly outstanding performance in this category from the Conservatives, not content with dismaying their voters by reneging on almost every commitment in the 2019 manifesto, Tory moderates doubled down this week, warning that the party risked falling into the hands of extremists who supported conservative policies. And we obviously had this more than 20 MPs warning that groups like the new conservatives with their support for, wait for this, low immigration and strong borders risk creating the damaging impression that the Conservative Party was right wing. Now, I would say that, among other things, this has been the year in which far right has been levelled as an insult against people who I would say were bang on in the centre of the Conservative Party, which is where I would put my political opinions. And I think that's become increasingly untenable. And I also think that, as Tim alluded to earlier, what we have seen in all the recent by-elections where Labour has won, but not by winning any more votes. Labour has won because the Tory voters will not turn out. And that if you look at each single by-election, what you see is the margin of victory of Labour is the number equivalent to the Tories who stayed home. I think that's right. Stay at home Tories is going to be a really big thing. Tories going to reform who are now polling 10, 11%, 11% is going to be yeah. a big thing. I think the economy is also going to be a big thing. And of course, Tim's right. There's no way they're going to make us sit through a general election campaign in the run up to Christmas. But I do think the Tories are more likely to push the election, all other things being equal, to the autumn rather than during the spring and summer. And the reason is we've just had a big reduction in inflation. Inflation is now 3.9% compared to 4.6%. That's the November number. There's going to be enormous pressure on the Bank of England. Planet Normal listeners know my views about the Bank of England. They've been very slow behind the curve. Financial markets don't believe the Bank of England, which is a really bad thing when they say they're not going to lower interest rates anytime soon. I think interest rates are going to start going down in February or March. And I think there's going to be a succession of interest rate falls. I think there's going to be, I wouldn't call it a feel-good factor, but I do think we are going to shake off this cost of living crisis. And I do think the economy is going to start to get out of second gear where it's been pretty much since the end of the pandemic and maybe into third gear. And the Tories are going to want to capitalise on that, Tim, I think, delaying the election to let that economic improvement show through. One proviso, and we'll get onto this with Con Cochran in a while, I'm sure, if there are big geopolitical whiz-bangs, if there are big energy price spikes caused by OPEC or wars in Ukraine or wars in the Middle East, then all bets are off. Then I think the election timing is completely up in the air because you'll have a renewed inflation spike. Agreed. I think the Tories have two advantages heading to the next election. One is, the, as you said, rightly, the economy may well be a bit better because of that fall in inflation is good news. And the other is Rishi Sunak himself. Labour is playing its cards desperately close to its chest. It's sitting on a 15-point lead. It's terrified of blowing it. And so its strategy is to say nothing about anything. As I keep joking, we only find out what Labour thinks about a policy when they're announcing that they're no longer doing it. Yeah. Right? They will only ever tell you something when they're coming out to say we've changed our mind about something to prove how very right-wing they are. They're not running on a prospectus at all. And I think when you, if you get into a head-to-head debate between Rishi Sunak and Starmer, I think the public will find Starmer irritating because they'll see him dancing away from hard and fast positions and just constantly jumping on to a supposed moral high ground. Whereas I think they'll see in Sunak a man who is clearly in command of the detail. Some voters might also, if they review the last year, conclude that Sunak's actually 
perhaps one of the most right-wing prime ministers since Cameron, possibly <coughs> Thatcher. If you think about what he's done this year, he's shifted away from some of the quote-unquote green crap. He's finally cut taxes, and he is trying to get the Rwandan flights going. The problem is that he's running up against 13 years, a sense of fatigue, and also that people just don't believe the Tories anymore. Particularly conservative voters don't believe that they'll actually do any of the stuff that they'll say they're doing. And of course, he's been greatly undercut by how difficult it's been to get Rwanda flights off the ground and also by the resignation of Suella Braverman. I mean, just yesterday, it turned out in the course of his liaison committee interrogation, it doesn't look like there isn't a commercial airline willing to take people to Rwanda which is extraordinary. And if the human rights lawyers get together and encourage Wizz Air to do it, they'll never leave Britain because they'll just be sitting on the runway permanently delayed. <laughs> they will lose their luggage. They will also, that'll, turn, that'll take <laughs> off. That'll turn up in Brasilia. So I, I just think there's a, there's a sense of frustration and blue wall traditional Tory voters, they are moving towards reform. Its numbers are growing. That would split the party. I agree with Alison. Given that I can't predict how it'll go, I think every seat is potentially up in the air. Nowhere is very safe. And what really troubles me is just some of the what Alison was quoting, the so-called One Nation liberal Tories saying, assuming that the Tories are left with about 12 seats next year after the general <laughs> election, you just know that their conclusion is going to be that they were too right-wing. Because that's how the Tory party's mad mind works, that the problem was they weren't sufficiently pro-mass migration, they didn't raise taxes (laughs) high enough, and they might also conclude they didn't go to enough wars with enough countries, I don't know. But either way, they're going to double down on the Westminster consensus on how everything is done and try to become a pale uh, shadow of Labour at the very moment when Labour's trying to become a pale shadow of them. I don't know why we bother having elections. We might just as well elect the Times. Just have the times run Britain. (laughs) They already think they do. They already think they do. So why not? I want Mr. Javier Millet to run Britain. The uh, Argentinian. Excellent Argentinian gentleman. The one with the three dead dogs on his presidential (laughs) sash. No, he consults dead. I thought actually if Tim Stanley were to run Britain consulting Bertie, the Cavalier King Charles, we could not be in any deeper doo-doo than we actually are. Certainly fox hunting would be legal. (laughs) I I actually think that this has been a year, we'll bring Conan in a minute, I think 2023 has been a year when migration has become one of the absolute dominant issues. And of course, forget the small boats, the absolute humdinger that legal net migration to the UK was 745,000 this year to the year ending June. Suella, of course, walked out. Robert Jenrick also very significantly resigned as immigration minister, saying they had no intention of getting this under control. And I think that's now, that's the last nail in the coffin. But across Europe and indeed across obviously the Middle East and North Africa, we're seeing these huge flows of people and the international treaties, which seem to be way out of date for dealing with this. Uh, Con, what do you think from the point of view of watching things that are happening in the Middle East and what's happening with all these people coming here? We're having thousands of mainly young men coming from North Africa and the Middle East who destroy their documents. Do you think there's a security concern there? Oh, there's a major security concern, Alison. And I mean, one of the reasons, just going back, one of the reasons I voted for Brexit was having watched the European Union up close and personal in various conflict theatres, I came to the conclusion there's no such thing as unity in the European Union. And the migration crisis, which is what it is in Europe, is now exposing that in spades because you have, despite the Commission's attempts to formulate a united policy for dealing with mass migration, all the different countries are pulling in different directions. We know that 
Italy, which is one of the main recipient of illegal migrants, just sort of waves them through into France, who in turn waves them through up to Calais and into other countries. But you've got other countries like Hungary in particular, they're just saying, we do not believe in this and we are putting up the shutters. So that's one element. The other element is I think there is a very big risk that the migrant crisis could be weaponized by hostile states. For example, we've recently seen the Russians trying to flood the Finnish border with illegal migrants to punish the Finns for joining NATO. We've seen this from Belarus tried it a year or two ago, again, to sort of try and punish us for supporting Ukraine. And on it goes. And to your specific reference, Alison, about North Africa, well, you've got all these militias. Some of them have ties to the Wagner Group, Vladimir Putin's personal army. And this is just yet another attempt. I mean, the more migrants that come into Europe, the more difficulties Europe has. So if you're if you're Vladimir Putin or if you're Iran or even the Taliban in Afghanistan, you say, well, let's turn on the taps, let's get ship people out and let's cause more misery and disunity within Europe. It always amazes me how little mainstream European politics imposes on hard political debate here in the UK. It's almost as if we're ignoring it. But if you look across the piece, look how AFD are doing in Germany. They're well to the right of anything that UKIP have ever said. Look at Gert Wilders in the Netherlands. Look at Maloney in Italy. Look what's happening in Spain. Look at the fact that Marine Le Pen could win. I mean, she could genuinely win. That political dynasty has been gaining, gaining, gaining over the last four or five French presidential elections. And as and when it's pretty clear, Starmer, if Labour win the election, it's interesting to me that so much of continental Europe is heading right, and yet the UK will be electing somebody broadly from the centre-left. It seems as if we're going in the reverse direction, and yet our political and media class keeps telling us how nasty we all are and how institutionally difficult the UK is finding it to cope with this immigration question. At the same time as Labour has, maybe it's only paying lip service to it, but Labour has technically embraced Brexit and immigration control in order to make itself electable. I think there was something paradoxical in the British mind of those of us who voted for Brexit. On the one hand, we wanted to control immigration and probably bring it down. On the other hand, we also wanted to inoculate ourselves against the extremist politics of the continent. That's right. We wanted practical fixes to the immigration issue. Whereas among Europeans, particularly the European far right, there is actually a more emotional, ideological view about race and nation, which we don't share. They are far more likely to overcorrect in a scary way than we are. Uh, And that's why I don't think you see a natural sense of alliance between British conservatives and European conservatives. It's not just in Europe that the trend is to the right. I mean, if you look at the opinion polls in America, and I know we're coming on to this later, but America's moving right. So so one of my fantasies is is how is Starmer going to deal with Trump when Trump gets back into the White House? Can I just ask everybody? So one of the where most of, of our readers, I think, have got to now, because Tories in previous elections were always able to sort of shroud wave, oh, Labour's going to be so dreadful that you better vote for us, you know, at least we're not as bad as them. But I think the attitude now is can Labour really be that much worse, given that we've got taxes at a record 
for 70 years and there isn't really much money left in the kitty for them to do much harm. I mean, that's one thing. Tim, do you think that's right or do you think culturally Labour could be very damaging? I feel a bit insulted by the argument that I've got to vote Conservative because Labour could be worse when the Conservatives have have done everything they have always classically said Labour would do. They have raised the taxes. You've had mass migration. The borders are not properly controlled. We've undergone the woke stuff. And stuff they're doing right now is sort of small and tidying up after themselves. They could afford to cut taxes a little bit because they had raised them to historic levels. That's why they could afford to do it. So you're inevitably taking a punt on Labour and you're judging whether or not you can take a risk. And on the basis of Starmer's past positions on things like Europe and immigration, what's he likely to do? But I think if you actually just sat down and looked at the numbers on these issues and compared New Labour's governments and the Tory period in office, New Labour does not come across that badly. Migration was not at this level, for instance. They did have an asylum seeker uh, problem in the early noughties. They did deal with it. They are right about that. So I, I think if you just see things in those purely practical terms and on the cultural stuff, I'm not, I, I wonder to the extent to which any national government can hold back against what is a sort of a change in the zeitgeist of an entire generation. I think Starmer's Labour are implementing the new Labour handbook to the you know, point that Peter Mandelson's knocking around. A lot of new Labour era advisors are getting involved again and they are a tried and tested election winning machine. So Starmer will keep picking fights with the left of his party. He likes having fights with the left of his party because it reassures everybody that the left won't control him too much. Look, if you want a moderate Labour government, you want Labour to win big because if Starmer wins with 30-seat majority or a 40-seat majority, he's going to be controlled by the campaign group of, of pretty hard-left Labour MPs. He's not obviously not Jeremy Corbyn, and I think he's done a good job. You've got to hand it to him of purging his party mm. of a lot of the Corbynistas. But what will really matter is when Labour finally publishes its manifesto yes. and we see the colour of their money in terms of policies. Yeah. Because when we see their policies, then the Tory party and journalists across the piece will start picking away at those policies, asking about difficult things like costings, borrowings and all the rest of it. But, you know, if the British government's debt interest bill is coming down by billions of pounds every month, which it may well be, Mm. as inflation falls and interest rates fall, then there may be a bit more fiscal headroom for Labour to be able to say it wants to do some more expansionist things without the numbers necessarily looking too disastrous. Because right now, everything is being paid for by an increase in taxes on non-doms and by taxing private schools. That's right. And the list of things they're going to pay for with that is absurd. (laughs) But they had one novel economic policy, which was to borrow to invest $28 billion in the green economy. And in the last few weeks, they have said, Rachel Reeves is in charge, her fiscal rules come first. And if we can't do that, meeting the fiscal rules, we won't do it. So right now, the one innovative Ed Miliband-driven policy has effectively been cancelled, assuming that they don't have the money to do it. So if you're looking at that as a voter, it's all well, all well for the Tories to say, you don't know what they might do. Well, they're pretty clear about what they're not going to do yeah. right now. Yeah. And I'm not frightened of them. I'm just not scared of them. They, they don't terrify me. I tell you what does worry me, and we can come on now, I think, to the Middle East, is a time of mounting anti-Semitism. Labour is saying it's going to introduce these Islamophobia laws, which will basically ban anyone saying anything about the Muslim community in the United Kingdom, which I'm very concerned about that. I think we've seen with these pro-Palestine marches a side of things that I've been worried about for a really long time, and the nurturing within certain communities of anti 
Western attitudes. And indeed, I hate to say this, but I think there will be a terrorist attack in 2024. I imagine Com will know more about this than me, but I imagine MI5 and MI6 are working round the clock at the moment to deal with the jihadist threat. But Con, can we come on to you now? Obviously, one of the huge issues of the year has been the after effects of the dreadful 7th of October massacres in Israel. You've written some fantastic books on the Middle East. Can you give us a quick snapshot of how are Hamas doing? The IDF seems to be pressing ahead, but with mounting calls for ceasefires. What do you think is likely to happen in 2024? Well, first of all, I think, obviously, I'm in touch with the IDF and talking to them regularly and to my contacts in Israel. And it's quite clear to me that Israel, for all the obstacles that they're encountering, whether it's shooting their own hostages or shooting up hospitals and and Catholic churches, they are going to press ahead. They are determined to destroy Hamas as a military force in Gaza. And they are going to continue no matter what. doesn't matter what Biden says, what Lloyd Austin says, what David Cameron says, sorry, Lord Cameron, as he is now, that great guru of foreign policy. Let's just see what he did (laughs) in Libya to see how effective he is as a foreign operator. But I move on. So first of all, I think the Israelis are determined and I think politically, if there is one more Hamas missile fired at Israel once the military operations concluded, Netanyahu is finished politically. So, I mean, there's a lot riding on this for Netanyahu. The thing I find particularly disturbing is in my private conversations with pro-Western Arab leaders over the years, they've all expressed their complete and utter distaste for Hamas because Hamas wants to overthrow them as much as destroy Israel. And yet now we've got this war going on, they're running away from Hamas. They prefer to talk about Israeli settlers and whatever happened to the two-state solution. They won't address the Hamas problem. And I think looking forward, because you know the fighting will end and there will be some kind of process. I, I hesitate to call it a peace process, but there will be a process post-conflict in Gaza And if the Arabs are in this la-la land of denying that Hamas is an existential threat to them as well as Israel, then I fear that we're not going to make much progress. Do you worry about the war spreading? Do you worry about incursions from the north, Lebanon in particular, controlled by Iran, Hezbollah controlled by Iran? Yes. Well, I'm I'm writing about this this week, Liam. I mean, the, the elephant in the room is Iran. Iran is the biggest military supporter of Hamas. The problems we now have in the Red Sea, which to my mind is a mirror image of what the Iranians tried to do in the Straits of Hormuz at the end of the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. They know that the soft underbelly of the West are our trade routes. So they've now got one of their militias, the Houthis, to start firing at international shipping A lot of the big, Liam, you know this better than I, but all the big shipping companies now rerouting around the Cape of Good Hope, adding two weeks to journeys. That will impact on the economy. You were talking about geopolitical whiz-bangs earlier. Well, this has the potential to be a very big whiz-bang. And Iran's influence, Hezbollah recently claimed, again, another Iranian ally in southern Lebanon. They claim they managed to take out a launch site for the Iron Dome in Israel. There are lots of Iranian militias in Syria itching to get into the fight. So, I mean, this has the potential to escalate alarmingly. Having said that, you know, if you call the Iranians bluff, it's a bit like Putin and Ukraine. 
if you call their bluff and say, well, actually, if you carry on like this, we'll take you out, they do back off. So I think the West needs to find its mojo as far as both supporting Israel's concerned and making sure that Iran and its proxies don't escalate this conflict and give us the geopolitical whiz-bangs that some of us fear. So you've got the Iranians playing the Houthi card, if you like, messing with the, the Suez Canal. They could play the Hezbollah card, incursions into Israel from the north, from Lebanon. They could also play, as you say, the Straits of Hormuz card, the narrow waterway, the entrance point into the Persian Gulf, through which a third of the world's oil ships each day, and we use over 100 million barrels of oil a day in the world, travels through that pinch point. Could it really get that bad, Con? Would the Iranians really close the Straits of Hormuz? Well, they've been threatened to do this since the 1980s. I mean, as a young reporter for The mm. Telegraph, I was on the Royal Navy warships patrolling the Gulf in the 1980s. And it was, it was, it was hairy stuff. I mean, they were running around in speedboats, the RPGs, shooting everything up. And we've eventually got on top of it. But since then, the Iranians have developed anti-ship missiles, which are stationed at Bandra Bas, with the precise purpose of taking out ships. So you can't rule this out. And coming back to something that Alison mentioned earlier, the Iranians and their allies have sleeper cells throughout Europe, including the UK. You can just see the organisation that's gone into these anti-Israel protests. I mean, this hasn't come out of a clear blue sky. It was only, I think, at the turn of this year that an Iranian opposition television station based in Hammersmith had to relocate to Washington because of all the death threats it was receiving from Iranian agents in the UK. And MI6 and MI5, bless them, you know, are so obsessed with their own woke culture and their rainbow lanyards that, you know, I just wonder how effective a job they're doing these days. There was a marvellous moment this year where most of the former Hamas leaders seemed to be living in council houses in northwest London, wasn't there? It was Quite luxurious like of... <laughs> council houses, I must say. I must say, Con, I think the tone on Russia-Ukraine has, has changed. More and more high-profile commentators, analysts, even practitioners now talking about some kind of negotiated outcome, talking about preparing Ukraine to cede some ground, talking about Ukraine fatigue. Do you sense Ukraine fatigue, Con? I sense a sellout is what I sense, Liam. And I think, again, I think the comparison with standing up to Iran on the Gaza crisis is valid. One of the things that has sort of undermined Western support for Ukraine is the Biden administration's obsession with not upsetting Putin. You know, from the moment he invaded Ukraine, Putin was rattling on about his nuclear weapons. He was never going to use them. But Biden and co are so weak that they've denied the Ukrainians the proper weaponry they require to win the war. So we've got a stalemate. It's an election next year. Biden still thinks he can win it. And the last thing he wants is a war in Ukraine, let alone a war in the Middle East. So the wheels are already in motion. Hear me out here. The Germans, the French, the Americans want a deal. They want to sell out Ukraine. There are negotiations taking place as we talk now with the Ukrainians excluded. This is what's going on. And I think this will be a disaster for the future of Western security, as I've written many times in the Telegraph this year. The Ukrainian war is our war. 
If Putin wins this, then the future security of Europe and NATO is under threat. And I blame the politicians. You know, where's Rishi on Ukraine? When was the last time you made a speech saying, if we don't help the Ukrainians win, Europe will be next? I mean, I haven't heard that. And who else is saying it? Not Biden, not Macron, not Schultz. So it's a failure of leadership, which is why I wrote a rather provocative column last week saying that Donald Trump's the only one. Sound like you. <laughs> I was just going to ask you about that. Only Donald Trump can save the free world. Joe Biden's time in office has been characterised by capitulation and, the, and only his opponents know the value of strength. Tim, you're a great scholar of American history, did your PhD on that in Trinity College, Cambridge. Do you agree with Con? Do you view the, the return of the Donald as a sort of Philip to the cause of the West or do you fear it? It depends on how you define the best interests of the West. If you think things like immigration control are important, then unquestionably. If you think an open-ended commitment to Ukraine in the war there, then possibly not, because Donald Trump has been quite critical of that and has spoken of resolving it within 24 hours, which is (laughs) an extraordinary claim. Uh, And uh, likewise, his chief opponent in the prime is DeSantis is, is of a similar mind, although the other candidate now rising up through the polls, Nikki Haley, is not. We don't know what's going to happen with Trump next year. My suspicion is he still wins the primaries and probably still wins the general. But there are all these legal traps that have been laid out for him, one of which has just happened is the Colorado Supreme Court has ruled that he cannot appear on the ballot there. That doesn't Mm. throw the primaries or the election, but it's an example of the kind of surprise twist, which leaves us unwilling to properly bet on on an outcome one way or the other. But I think there's fatigue towards both wars, towards both Israel and Ukraine. In the case of Israel, I suspect popular opinion, which, by the way, I think was probably always more pro-Palestinian than pro-Israeli. I think it's an elite position to be pro-Israel in this country. I'm not being critical of it. I just think I just think that's the fact. And I think that seeing three hostages being killed by the IDF is going to radically push uh, popular opinion further down that route. And it's also going to change the mind of MPs. And that's becoming obvious. More and more Tory MPs are now critical of Israel. And if Labour wins next year, we have had a preview this year of how that could change foreign policy. Stum has been keen to show that he is in lockstep with Sunak on foreign policy because he's trying to distinguish himself from Jeremy Corbyn, who is definitely not. But if you look at how Labour MPs have voted Mm. on Israel, what they've said about Israel, well, with more of that kind of MP in the Houses of Parliament, and considering that we have established a precedence that we only act if Parliament supports war in this country, I think foreign policy becomes a lot more complicated if Keir Starmer wins an election. The thing about America you always have to understand is even those who are quote-unquote isolationist, which is an inaccurate label, but even those who are labeled as isolationists, they do so because they want to make America great. But the thing is that America greatness is defined by its position on the world stage. You can't have America losing. So even the American right knows that even if they don't like Zelensky because of a weird partisan issue with they blame him for Russiagate, etc., under Trump, they can't allow Putin to win. They know that, which is why uh, even though Trump has said all these things about 24 hours, just give me 24 hours, so easy, so <laughs> easy, we love to say Zelensky. Uh, despite all that stuff, I think he will maintain Biden's position because I don't think he can allow Putin to win. Do you agree with that, Con? Do you think that that's what will happen? Or do you think there will be a sellout ultimately? My mind is still on a sellout. I mean, I think, first of all, the American presidential election is going to dominate the geopolitical agenda next year because you've got the important issues. We were talking about the Ukraine sellout. Putin will hold out for a deal until he knows the outcome of the election because he thinks he can do business 
with Donald Trump and he's suspicious of the Democrats and their left-wing agenda. He will think he can get a bit better deal. And in the meantime, as we've seen, you know, he's retooled the Russian arms industry. The Russians are now starting to make progress in a way they haven't, we haven't seen in the last two years. So I think that's quite important. Meanwhile, Biden will be desperately trying to get rid of all the conflicts. So this is going to cast a very long shadow over the, the geopolitical landscape in 2024. It does look as if Trump's going to win, doesn't it? Well, if he gets the nomination, Biden's poll ratings are careening. Is British intelligence, the British state in general, con preparing for a return to the White House of Donald Trump? I think they're having paroxysms at the thought of it. I mean, I, <laughs> I really do. I mean, I think the senior professionals in the military, etc., will will just take it in their stride because you know administrations come and go, and the so-called special relationship prevails. The bigger question for us, frankly, is that we've got to get our military set up to a level that's required with the threats we face. And in the autumn statement, there was no mention of increasing the defence budget or anything like that. And as Admiral Lord West wrote in the the paper this morning, the Navy is severely depleted at a time when we need the Royal Navy at its most effective to keep our trade channels open. You know this better than me, Liam, but 90% of the world's trade goes by sea these days. And if malevolent actors can disrupt it, then all our economists suffer. So I think we will cope with Trump. And also, let's not forget, whatever you think about Donald Trump, some of his foreign policy initiatives were right on the money. I mean, he was the one who first started to call out the Chinese. And here, that resulted in us getting rid of Huawei from 5G. I mean, a very significant thing. Our intelligence officials were telling me we've nothing to worry about from Huawei. So he also stood up to Iran. The Abrahamic Accords were pretty uh, forward-looking, weren't they? Getting together Arab countries with Israel, doing business, doing tech deals. Exactly. There's a fantastic video of Trump saying to these absolutely affronted Germans, basically, what the hell do you think you're doing, putting all your eggs in this Russian pipeline basket? Because if you're dependent on them and if they ever decide to cut it off, your energy security is going to be grotesquely compromised. I mean, he couldn't have been more on the money, could he? He couldn't have been more on the money. And I think left his own devices, Trump would have blown it up rather than the Ukrainians. (laughs) (laughs) Just in the last five minutes, Alison, give us some more of your end of year gongs to round off our review of 23. And I'll look forward to 2024. I've gone for the Abuse of the English Language Award to the BBC. Right. Stubborn refusal to call the terrorist organisation Hamas a terrorist organisation after the massacres of 7th of October. And, it, you know, a survey last week did show that 80% of British Jews feel less safe in the UK than before the attacks. And there's been a collapse amongst British Jewry and faith in the British institutions with 64% saying they had lost all confidence in the BBC. Personally, I felt that moral equivocation in the face of of evil. It was evil. I know Tim was talking about pro-Israel support being an elite position. I'm just so affronted by what happened. I mean, I think anybody who's looked into anything of what happened on that absolutely dark day helped to set up this year, British Friends of Israel, and was involved with Sir Tom Stoppard. And Tom wrote a brilliant thing for us, British Friends of Israel, and he basically said, Hamas knew what it was going to provoke 
knew it was going to provoke these horrible, horrible attacks on the Palestinians. And he said, and Hamas reckoned it not. That's what happened. And Tom said, this is not about geography or politics. This is about a battle between barbarism and civilization. And I absolutely 100% believe that. I think the struggle we are seeing is not just about nasty Israelis beating up vulnerable Palestinians. It's literally pick a side. Do we support people who will go into a kibbutz and shoot babies in the head in their cots? I was interested, Con, actually, in one of your recent articles, you said that you felt that the West was being too weak to really oppose and destroy its most fundamental and evil opponents. Do you think that's right? Are we weakening in the West? Well, I think there's too much equivocation around for my liking. I mean, I agree with every word you said, Alison, about the threat from Hamas. And over the years, I've seen this up close and personal when I've been working as a foreign correspondent. Can we just interrupt quickly? Because Planet Normal listeners will not know that you were very nearly kidnapped in 1986 by Hezbollah the day before John McCarthy was kidnapped. You could have been a hostage, Con. I could have been. And I, I was very lucky I got away. And poor John, who'd had dinner with me the night before he was kidnapped, I was not so lucky. Uh, so, so as I say, I've seen his bullet up close and personal. And that's when they first started, back in the 1980s, when I was based in Beirut. Yeah, I've been to war with the Revolutionary Guards on the Shatel Arab. And I've been in other parts of the Middle East and seen atrocities committed in the name of Islam, which is nothing to do with Islam, of course. This is a great aberration. But these death cults, which is what Hamas is, which is what Islamic State is, is it what Al-Qaeda is. I mean, I've also written, I don't remember anybody calling for a ceasefire when we were bombing Tora Bora to get rid of Bin Laden or bombing Raqqa to get rid of Islamic State. And yet the moment the Israelis do it, in Gaza, it's, oh, no, we don't want to do this. And I say there's too much equivocation around. Putin is hostile to our way of life and our interests. Hamas is even worse and is, it wants to destroy our whole way of life. So we need to wake up and get real and get robust. We're almost out of time. Tim, final word to you. Well, I want to make it clear when I said that it's an elite position. I wasn't implying what my view of it was. I think that the public overwhelmingly, of course, was horrified by October the 7th and would regard it as a pogrom because that's exactly what it was. But if you just look at the polling since then, it is a majority position that there should be an end to the fighting in Israel. And I think this is an issue on which the right may be right but it might actually be out of step with popular opinion because I think a lot of British people regard the Palestinian people as distinct from Hamas, as caught between two military operations and they are distressed at the thought of innocent people being killed. Ultimately, you have 2.2 million people living in a very small area and any military operation carried out by anyone is going to lead to a lot of innocent people being killed and I think the public found the thought of that as chilling and, and they wanted it stopped. Well, Tim, it's great to have you with us. Con Cochrane too. I don't think 2024 is going to be an, an easy year. We expect the economy to get better. The Middle East is probably going to get messier. And we could easily end up with Donald Trump in the White House. Thanks so much to both of you for being with us on Planet Normal. Happy Christmas and Happy New Year. Palestinians in Gaza are living through a bombardment that they've never experienced before. Introducing Battle Lines, an original Telegraph podcast. 
Listen to expert analysis of the Israel-Hamas war. Follow on-the-ground reporting and understand how the conflict is reshaping our world. It's a small country. Everyone knows someone whose relatives have been killed or kidnapped. Things are starting to broaden out from Gaza, from Israel. Listen to Battlelines every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts. We learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. This is from Paul, who I met last week at a lunch for a company called Stockford Anderson in the city of London. And Liam, there were several Planet Normal listeners there. They get everywhere. Including Charlie, who came up and said he was an owner of two Planet Normal mugs. I mean, it's like meeting Hussein (laughs) Bolt or something, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, Paul says, I'm writing because my experience resonated with that of Rick, who wrote so movingly to Planet Normal about his inability to visit his dying father in hospital during lockdown. My mum sadly suffers from dementia, and during lockdown, I was prevented from having any contact with her. My mother was effectively in solitary confinement, which, as I'm sure you will know, is the worst possible way of treating a dementia sufferer. My mum survived, but she's so much worse as a consequence of her isolation. It was tough for my mother, tough for all her family, not being able to support her. And so we have decided to try and do something to make a difference. Next April, me and my son Aaron are proposing to climb Everest in aid of Dementia UK. We're looking to raise enough money for two new specialist admiral nurses at a cost of £60,000 each. If you could possibly read out my email, Liam and Alison, perhaps some of your legion of Planet Normal fans might be interested in supporting us. We are totally self-funded, says Paul, and 100% of any contribution will go straight to Dementia UK. So listeners, if you want to help support Paul and Aaron, who will be giving this money to these amazing dementia nurses, do visit the Just Giving page, Everest Summit Challenge 2024. And Paul Anderson is the reference. You can also follow the guys on Instagram at Everest Summit challenge. Keep up the great work, says Paul. You and Liam really are making a difference and you're an inspiration to so many others. This is from another Charlie. In Alison's Shamelessness of the Year Awards, I think that Dame Alison, with one L, Rose, ought to get a mention. (laughs) Caught red-handed but not red-faced when Coots cancelled Nigel Farage's account, clearly for political reasons, she should have been sacked on the spot. But oh no, that wasn't going to happen, so she got to resign which that career weasel Sir Howard Davies called a sad moment. After all, she had dedicated all her working life so far to Nat West and will leave many colleagues who respect and admire her, which is more than can be said by shareholders in Nat West who thought that her original severance package of <laughs> 11 million quid was un peu riche. The barefaced brass neck of the woman takes some beating. Have a lovely Christmas. Best, Charlie. And this is from Philip. Many thanks for Alison's excellent article in The Telegraph. Lack of shame has been a major issue for a good number of years. As to the government and parliament, I could rant for a long time over its failure to protect vulnerable children, failure to secure energy supplies, to maintain adequate infrastructure and so on. But I shall content myself with one question. The excellent Miriam Cates is charged with bringing Parliament into disrepute. How is that possible to bring the Orgian stables into disrepute? I believe the need for cleansing was highlighted in your paper some years ago. Indeed, with the expenses scandal. Mm. With best wishes for Christmas and the new year, Philip. 
I just want to say, Liam, that Miriam Cates, who is a great stalwart of, of our podcast, I think represents much that's good in the Conservative Party and much that our listeners believe in. Miriam is facing a parliamentary standards inquiry for attending a party inside Parliament in December 2020. Now, the police have already decided that that event does not merit meet the threshold to investigate. And I was in touch with someone who works closely with Miriam. And I said, why is she facing this standards investigation? And he said, the penalty for being brave. Wow. Let's just think about that. The penalty, Miriam Kate stands up week after week in Parliament and asks the questions that ordinary men and women up and down this country want to be asked. Why is this trans ideology in classrooms? What's going on with immigration? What's going on for ordinary working families? So Miriam is now being investigated for being brave and perhaps embarrassing some people in the Tory party who don't have any integrity. And Planet Normal listeners can listen to Alison's interview with Miriam Cates. She was on the rocket back in January this year, the 26th of January. You can go back in our archives and listen to that interview between Alison and Miriam. One of the great pleasures and privileges of us presenting Planet Normal is we do get an incredible range of emails from very, very knowledgeable and interesting listeners. And this has come in from John. It's not his real name, but John is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the United States. He says he'd prefer to remain anonymous due to potential career risks associated with speaking out. Now, I think this is a very telling email, Liam, about the state of what's going on in the Western world generally. Dear Alison and Liam, thanks for the weekly visit to an island of sanity. I do so enjoy my visits, though I would prefer one crazy hour in a sane week rather than reality, which is the other way around. <laughs> I hold a senior post at the University of Pennsylvania known as UPenn, and I have never been so ashamed of an employer in my life as I have been of late, thanks to the former UPenn president, Liz McGill's appalling performance at the congressional hearing into campus anti-Semitism, where she was not able to condemn calls for genocide against Jews. It is now the most watched congressional testimony in history with over a billion views. While Liz McGill and the chairman of the board of trustees, Scott Bock, have both resigned, I do not believe my colleagues have got the message. Quite the opposite, in fact. Right now, we are being encouraged to sign an open letter from Penn professors to the Penn board of trustees, encouraging them to ignore criticism from alumni, donors, the press and politicians in order to maintain, quote, the academic independence of the university and its mission, I cannot believe it. It is akin to Marie Antoinette saying, let them eat cake. I believe the trio of Penn professors leading this charge and all who have signed the letter have completely misread the public mood due to the progressive bubble they inhabit. When Liz McGill claimed the shield of the First Amendment free speech rights, there is no free speech on the University of Penn campus only progressive orthodoxy. We were ranked 247 out of 248 in a list of college free speech rankings of US universities due to the total lack of respect for even centrist views. If you're not part of the progressive cheerleading crowd, you self-censor if you want to have a successful career. 
The campus climate is one in which we are all sent official UPenn news emails extolling the latest progressive hobby horse. For example, we must all congratulate UPenn trans woman swimmer Leah Thomas for breaking records, despite the fact she went from 550th ranked male swimmer, i.e. in nobody, to the number one female. We must all accept that medicine, including our own university-affiliated hospital, is systemically racist. Our administration also allowed open Jew hatred at a campus Palestinian literary conference in September. Our student body marches in support of Palestine exclusively, projects anti-Semitic messages onto university buildings without a single reported case of a student being expelled. UPenn and other members of the now Poison Ivy League universities have managed to elevate the progressive campus to a subject of national debate where we risk the Republican Party developing a policy to rein us in. Indeed, if the Republicans win control of the government as is expected in the 2024 elections, UPenn and peer institutions face one, becoming ineligible for government grant funding, two, loss of tax-exempt status, including on the endowment resulting in significant financial harm. These actions would seriously damage US universities, but it would not be fair to lay the blame on Republicans and dismiss it as a reactionary right-wing populism. Indeed, the average voter has been so appalled by the behaviour of US academia since the 7th of October massacres in Israel that we have literally bitten the hand that feeds us. Now, a plurality of voters, if not a majority, would like to hold us to account and see dramatic reform. We need heterodox thinkers. We need a culture of respect, kindness, tolerance and diversity, but it must go beyond racial and ethnic heritage, gender identity and sexual orientation to include religious and political viewpoints. We cannot have a publicly funded system, both in grants and enormous tax benefits, that universally supports only the progressive left. I would like to see my colleagues across universities in the West accept that they must come back to the political middle as soon as possible before academia is irrevocably damaged by voter-backed direct government action. We must upend the status quo at UPenn before the government does it for us. Please keep up the great work, John. Very important email there from the US. And let's finish off with an email from Claire, Dr. Claire, not her real name, because Claire is an NHS doctor we know well here at Planet Normal. And Claire has, over the months and years, given us all kinds of insights into what's actually going on in the NHS Just to wish you and Liam a very happy Christmas and I hope you get a break, says Dr. Claire, not her real name. My husband and I are so grateful to you both for your persistence and courage and integrity. Thousands of people in the UK have good reason to be thankful for all you do. Onwards, Claire. That's very kind of you, Claire. P.S. Can you get Robert Jenrick on the rocket? He'd get my vote for Tory leader. Interesting there from Dr. Claire. Thank you so much. And on that wonderful tribute to Planet Normal from Dr. Claire. That's it from us for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's Alison's turn. Email of the week has got to be Professor John for that absolutely excoriating description of the progressive mindset that is damaging, doing such harm to universities across the civilised West. So, Professor John, not your real name, email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Give us your postal address and we'll send a rare as rocking horse poo planet normal mug to you 
If you enjoy Planet Normal, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I sometimes read them in the small hours of the night to cheer myself up. It does help others to find us and to help the Planet Normal family grow. And just to say, Alison and I are on our Christmas break for the next two weeks. We will leave you some wonderful reviews of the year, highlighting our best interviews on Planet Normal here in 2023. So do listen to those in the next two weeks and we will be back bright-eyed, bushy-tailed in 2024. The next Planet Normal will be on the 11th of January. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's happy Christmas from here. Yay! Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas! Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.